Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Themes in Greek Society and Culture, Chapter 8, Status and Class. By Jeremy Trevitt. At some point in the early 4th century BCE, an Athenian got into a legal dispute with a man named Pancelion, who worked in a fuller's, a workshop where cloth is cleaned of impurities. The Athenian's name is unknown. He is the speaker of Lysias 23, and his account is our only source for what happened. In the belief that Pancelion was a metic, a non-citizen resident of Athens, the speaker summoned him to appear before the court of the Polmarch the magistrate who handled most cases involving metics. Pancelion protested that he was not a metic, but an Athenian citizen. His claim was that he came from the city of Plataea and was a beneficiary of the Athenian's decision in 427 BCE to grant citizenship to all Plataean refugees in Athens. He had, he said, been registered in the Athenian deme, the neighborhood, Decelia. His opponent then made inquiries among the members of the deme, who frequented a particular barber shop, but none of them admitted to knowing him. Believing that Pancelion's claim was untrue, he proceeded with his case against him in the Polemarch's court. Pancelion, however, lodged a claim that the case was inadmissible since he was not a metic. Thwarted for the moment, the Athenian continued to investigate Pancelion's status, this time among the members of the Plataean community in Athens. All except one, named Nicomedes, denied any knowledge of him. Nicomedes, however, said that he had owned an enslaved man named Pancelion, but he had run away. This individual matched the speaker's opponent in both age and occupation. A few days later, the speaker came across Nicomedes attempting to drag Pancelion off by force, in other words, to reassert his ownership of him. Pancelion resisted, and those who were with him promised to produce his brother the following day to prove that he was a free man. At the meeting, which the speaker naturally turned up to witness, there was no sign of the brother, or of anyone else who could vouch for Pancelion. Instead, a woman appeared on the scene, claiming that Pancelion was in fact owned by her. She started to argue with Nicomedes and tried to prevent him taking Pancelion away with him. In the end, she and Nicomedes went off together with Pancelion, perhaps intending to resolve the question of his ownership on their own. Whether or not this vivid narrative is entirely true is impossible to assess. We have only one side of the story, nor is it known how the dispute ended. But neither of those things matter. What is important is the light that it throws on the operation of status in Athenian society. First, every individual necessarily belonged to one of three distinct status groups, citizen, metic, or enslaved. Second, status distinctions mattered. Metics were free men, but their access to the courts was different than that of full citizens. The enslaved had no rights and could be forcibly returned to the enslaver if they ran away. If Pancelion were really an enslaved person, he had a clear motive to pass himself off as a free man, still more as an Athenian citizen. And third, a person's legal status could be hard to determine, 
and it might fall to an interested party to have to turn detective to work it out for himself. Introduction Stratification is a feature of every developed human society. Members of a society are situated within it on the basis of legal status, wealth, power, and so on. Legal status is in principle clear-cut and regulated by rules. In modern societies, citizens, refugees, permanent residents, visiting workers, and so on are all clearly distinguished. Class is a more nebulous concept. Modern societies are typically regarded as divisible into three main classes, upper, middle, and lower, sometimes with intermediate classes, upper middle class, for example. This classification system is clearly a highly schematic model of society. Demographers and sociologists may develop more elaborate schemes, but it remains debatable how adequate these categories are for explaining the complexities of human communities. The concept of class raises a number of difficult questions. How and by whom is membership of a class determined? How should people who straddle different criteria, for example, high in education, low in wealth, be handled? How much mobility is there between classes? Is class a purely descriptive term, or are classes capable of taking action to pursue their own divergent interests? Can we talk of people acting as a class if they lack a sense of themselves belonging to one? These questions continue to be addressed by historians and political scientists, and all need to be kept in mind when discussing class in ancient Greece. When used by historians, class generally refers to a person's economic role. This usage goes back to the 19th century political theorist Karl Marx, who interpreted European history from antiquity onward in terms of the recurring struggle between two main classes, the rich, who control the means of production, land, factories, and so on, and the poor, whose labor they exploit. Historians disagree about how helpful the Marxist concept of class is for understanding ancient Greece and Rome. Some follow the sociologist Max Weber in preferring to analyze a society in terms of status, a broader concept that reflects a person's overall standing, including but not limited to wealth. A poor person, for example, a priest or a poet, may nevertheless be a person of high status in his society. In this chapter, class is used to refer to differences of wealth. As we will see, this is an important way in which the Greeks themselves regarded their society as being stratified. Status is used in a slightly different sense to Weber's, to refer to membership of a particular legally defined status group, for example, citizen, enslaved person, and so forth. Class and status are different ways to conceptualize the organization of an ancient Greek society. They differ in the sense that status is objectively determinable, whereas class can be a matter for debate, but both are equally important. This chapter focuses on classical Athens, which is the best attested ancient Greek society. While other Greek city-states were in some respects similar, the fact that Athens was a participatory democracy affected the way class operated there. It must also be kept in mind that almost all of the surviving literary resources were written by members of the educated elite, though in some cases for delivery or performance before a mass audience. Their perspectives may not have been entirely representative of the population as a whole. The voice of the poor and of women, metics, and enslaved people are all but silent. We also lack data on many topics such as nutrition, health care, and life expectancy which are likely to have been affected by differences of status and class. Status in Classical Athens 
As we have seen, every inhabitant of classical Athens belonged to one of three mutually exclusive status groups, citizen, metic, or enslaved. Members of these groups differed not only in rights and duties, but also in social standing. Citizens belonged in every respect to the most privileged status. Medics stood below them, and enslaved individuals were at the bottom of the pile, entirely without rights or honor. Citizens In his politics, Aristotle describes the Greek city-state, the polis, not as a territorial state, but as a form of association, whose members were citizens. The concept of citizenship is one that evolved over time as the criteria for full membership of the polis became more closely defined and as the polis itself became more complex. By a law introduced by Pericles in 451 BCE, Athenian citizens by birth had to have both an Athenian father and an Athenian mother. A century later, it was illegal for an Athenian even to marry a non-Athenian. These developments reflect the high value that the Athenians place on their citizenship. Athenian citizenship consisted of a bundle of rights and obligations. Adult male citizens enjoyed the exclusive right to participate in the public life of the polis. Only they could attend meetings of the assembly or hold one of the hundreds of public offices, including certain priesthoods and membership of the 500-person council or serve as one of the 6,000 impaneled jurors, or own land or property. Full participation in the religious life of the polis was also restricted, with some exceptions to citizens. Citizenship carried with it a certain obligations as well, military service in either the army or navy, and, for wealthy Athenians, taxes and other financial contributions. The discussion so far has been wholly about men, Athenian women were equally citizens by virtue of having two citizen parents, even though they were excluded from the political life of the city. Their involvement in the public realm centered on the performance of cult and participation in specific festivals, like the Thesmophoria. In this chapter, however, the terms Athenian citizen and citizen refer primarily to male citizens. In general, all Athenian citizens enjoyed equal status as citizens. Indeed, equality among the citizens was a core value of Athens' democracy. All citizens had the same right to attend, speak, and vote at meetings of the assembly. Any citizen could put himself forward to hold office or, subject to an age restriction, serve as a juror. Words with the prefix is, denoting equality, were watchwords of democracy. These included isagoria, the equal right to speak, and isonomia, equality before the law. The very word democracy, democratia, literally means power in the hands of the people, the demos, a term denoting the entire citizen body. Moreover, while there were some elected magistrates, notably the ten generals, the democratic city made extensive use of the lot to determine which candidates should be selected for office. The underlying assumption was that all Athenian citizens were equally qualified to serve. Athens espoused egalitarian values and afforded equal rights to every citizen, rich and poor. The one partial exception to this principle of full equality arises from the fact that every citizen was required to register into one of the four official groups on the basis of his wealth. This system had been introduced in the early 6th century BCE by Solon. Originally, the holder of major magistrates was restricted to the top three groups, 
the lowest group, Thetis, were excluded. This system operated throughout the classical period. For example, an expedition to found an Athenian colony in the 430s BCE restricted participation as colonists to the two lowest classes. But by the later 4th century BCE, the restriction on Thetis holding office was no longer enforced. Metics Any free non-Athenian, man or woman, Greek or non-Greek, who wished to settle in Athens was permitted to do so, but was required to register as a metic. Literally, someone who has changed their place of residence. The status of metic was also given to freed individuals, and to the children of one Athenian and one non-Athenian parent, who did not qualify for citizenship. Metics were required to pay a special tax to have a citizen patron. They had few of the rights, but many of the obligations of citizens. Metics could not hold office, attend meetings of the assembly, or serve as jurors. Nor were they ordinarily permitted to own land or property. A 4th century BCE decree of the assembly records the decision to grant metic merchants from Citium on Cyprus special permission to buy land in the Piraeus in order to build a temple there. Metics were, however, allowed to appear in court as litigants or witnesses. Wealthy medics had financial obligations and all had to undertake military service. Here, too, status distinctions operated. Richer medics served as hoplites, the heavy infantry, but in a secondary capacity, and were wholly excluded from serving in the cavalry. Privileges could be granted by vote of the assembly to medics who were deemed to deserve them. These included the remission of the metic tax, the right to acquire land, and, on occasion, citizenship. Enslaved people Enslaved people as a status group were defined by their utter lack of rights. They were regarded as property to be bought and sold, and their treatment was entirely a matter of their owners. They were routinely beaten and otherwise ill-treated, and had little recourse. Moreover, enslaved persons as property could not themselves own anything. Any money they might earn belonged in law to their owners, who could, in principle, take it away. Nor were they permitted to marry. Any relationships they entered into were unofficial and dependent on their enslaver's permission. As people without rights, they also had no access to the legal system. They could not bring forward prosecutions or appear as witnesses. Their evidence could be presented in court only if it had been extracted under torture, basanos. Surviving law court speeches contain numerous demands that the speaker's opponent surrender an enslaved household member for interrogation under torture or explanations of a refusal to do so. This reflects a common belief that enslaved people would tell the truth only if it was beaten out of them. It also demonstrates the threat of physical violence to which all enslaved individuals were permanently exposed. In practice, some enslaved people were more privileged. Those who were permitted to live independent lives were described as living apart from their enslavers. They made their own homes and worked on their own account, typically on condition that they remit part of their earnings to the person to whom they were enslaved. He said that he had a slave at Larium, and he needed to collect the payment that was owed him, is from one document. Some specialist workers, such as those who worked in banking, were highly skilled and made a lot of money for their enslavers. Nevertheless, even such individuals could not escape the implications of their status. A litigant prosecuting the banker passion 
over a sum of money of which he claims to have been defrauded, challenges him to agree to have the enslaved manager of the bank, Citus, examined under torture to reveal the truth of the matter. Status Differences and the Law The pervasive importance of status distinctions within the Athenian legal system, seen in the case of Pantheon, is further illustrated by the treatment of homicide. Cases of intentional homicide of a citizen were tried by the court of the Areopagus, with death as the penalty. Cases of killing an enslaved individual, metic or foreigner, were tried at the Palladium, a lesser court that also handled cases of unintentional homicide of a citizen. The penalty for killing an enslaved person seems to have been merely the payment of a fine. A similar picture emerges from an Athenian law of 375 BCE dealing with the official testing of coins in the commercial areas of the city and was the obligation of sellers to accept genuine coins. The testing was carried out by an enslaved bureaucrat of the city. The law states that if the tester does not take his seat or does not test as the law requires, let the collectors, a board of citizen magistrates, strike him with 50 blows of the whip. Sellers who refused to accept coins that had been tested and found genuine were liable to prosecution or summary treatment by the magistrates if the amount was less than 10 drachmas. But if the seller is a male or female slave, let him or her be struck with 50 blows of the whip by the relevant magistrates. Throughout the law, enslaved individuals were threatened with physical punishment and free individuals with fines. Outside Athens, similar status distinctions existed, as an extract from an inscribed law from Corton on Cretan shows below. See box 8.1 in the text. The Policing of Status The Athenians regarded their citizenship as a valuable privilege and imposed severe penalties on anyone found guilty of usurpation. Comprehensive reviews of the citizen lists are known to have been undertaken on several occasions. The lists of citizens were maintained in each deme. There was no central register. And members of the deme voted each year on admitting the sons of existing members when they reached adulthood. At a review held in 346-345 BCE, they voted on every name on the list. A surviving speech arising from this review is delivered by one Eustheus, who is appealing to the court against the decision of his demi to remove him from the register, thereby stripping him of his citizenship. If he was unsuccessful, he faced enslavement, or perhaps, if he succeeded in getting away in time, exile. In general, however, as with many other areas of the law, enforcement required an interested party to take action. In the speech against Niera, the speaker Apollodorus seeks to retaliate against his political opponent, Stephanus. By accusing the woman with whom Stephanus was living, Nera, of usurping Athenian citizenship. By Apollodorus' account, she was formerly enslaved as a prostitute in Corinth. If found guilty, Nera faced enslavement, which means being auctioned off by the city to the highest bidder. In his speech, Apollodorus elaborates at length about the sanctity of Athenian citizenship and insists that only the assembly has the right to grant it. Nera's status only became a legal matter because of the feud between Stephanus and Apollodorus. And as we have seen, Pantheon's disputed status emerges as a result of his being brought to court on a wholly different matter. Mobility between status groups. Status groups were clearly defined in law, but it was possible to move between them. 
the vast majority of citizens were Athenian by birth, and the only way a non-citizen could acquire citizenship was by a decree of the assembly. Such grants were rarely made and depended on the recipient having performed some service for which the Athenians wished to reward him. There were occasional instances of mass enfranchisement, such as in 427 BCE when citizenship was given to refugees from the nearby city of Plataea. This was the basis on which Panseleon claimed to be an Athenian. A fragmentary inscribed decree lists the humble recipients of public honors in connection with the restoration of democracy in 403 BCE, possibly Metics receiving citizenship. Remarkably, the Athenians seem to have granted citizenship to both Metic and enslaved rowers who contributed to the victory at the Sea Battle of Arginosia in 406 BCE. Grants of citizenship were also made to individuals and their descendants. A good example is Passion, a wealthy and successful Metic banker who had been the enslaved manager for Athenian bankers. Later freed by them, he took over the bank and became extremely wealthy. He made a series of gifts to the cities, including one of 1,000 shields. He owned a workshop that made them. As his son-in-law put it, the grant was made on account of his benefactions toward the city. Bankers feature prominently among recipients of citizenship. They could become very rich and often had useful connections with members of the political elite. The text in Box 8.2 comes from an ancient biography of the Metic speechwriter Lysias and recounts the failed attempt to secure him citizenship as a reward for his support of the restoration of democracy in 403 BCE. Athenian citizens could have their rights diminished or taken away if found guilty of certain offenses. In rare cases, a man could be outlawed, which amounted to immediate and permanent exile. More commonly, the penalty of atimia, literally removal of honor, involved the convicted man losing some of his rights, generally for life, or, in the case of state debtors, until he had repaid what he owed. A man who was punished with atimia nevertheless remained Athenian. He was not demoted to the status of medic. Enslaved people could change their status by being set free, either by decree of the assembly or, more usually, by decision of the person who claimed them as property, either during his lifetime or by will on his death. The will of the philosopher Aristotle, transmitted in an ancient biography, gives instructions for the freeing of some of the enslaved members of his household. Ambrasius is to be freed, and when my daughter gets married is to be given 500 drachmas and the maid whom she has now. Freed individuals were treated in law as metics, with their former owner for his heir serving as their patron. Unlike in Rome, they and their descendants had no claim to citizenship. The extent of their obligations to their former enslavers is unclear and may have varied. It was open to them to bring a suit against a former enslaved person for neglecting his or her duties. Conditional Manumission is illustrated by a series of Hellenistic inscriptions from Delphi, which record agreements by which the former enslaved person is typically obliged to continue to serve for a stipulated time. Status in daily life. In many areas of public life, status differences were of fundamental importance. Non-citizens were rigidly excluded from much of the civic life of the community or had a clearly demarcated and inferior position as, for example, during religious festivals. In social and economic dealings, however, legal status was often less important. For example, wealthy and educated metics moved in the upper echelons of Athenian society, 
Cephalus, the father of Lysias, a rich man and personal friend of Pericles, immigrated from Syracuse to Athens at his invitation. It is to Cephalus's house that Socrates is invited at the beginning of Plato's Republic. It is hard to say how much integration there was lower down the social scale, since the lives of the poor are not well documented. In the city of Athens and the Piraeus, with their large medic and enslaved populations, people of different legal statuses lived in close proximity and must have interacted with each other on a regular basis. People of the same ethnic origin might be enslaved, metic, or even citizen. It is unclear to what extent they formed distinct communities. The text in box 8.3 reflects a particular view of the social mix to be found in Athens. In public construction projects, men of different statuses worked alongside each other, doing the same work for the same pay. Similarly, the rowers in Athens' navies were a mixture of poorer citizens, metics, foreigners, and enslaved people. We have already seen that enslaved individuals were among those who took part in the Battle of Arginosia. An inscription from this late 5th century BCE lists the crews of a number of triremes and includes men of every status group. The modern reconstruction of an Athenian warship, shown in figure 8.1, gives a vivid sense of the physical proximity in which men of different statuses serve together. Enslaved people could work independently, as we have seen, or hold positions of responsibility in a business. Members of the different status groups often interacted with each other, especially in commercial transactions. In law court speeches, we find the enslaved staff of a bank dealing with wealthy medic and citizen clients. An enslaved person running up large debts is a manager of a perfume shop, and another captaining a cargo ship. A commercial contract lists as parties both Athenians and foreigners, probably metics, an Athenian and an Obian lent money to two merchants from Vesalus in Asia Minor to fund a trading trip. Their witnesses were two Athenians and a Boeotian. We also hear about an enslaved bureaucrat, Pitalakis, who had no individual to supervise him, who was described as being well-off and having his own house in which he associated with a number of prominent Athenians. In short, as one historian put it, Athenian civilization was far more complex and multifaceted than the prevailing tripartite oversimplification. Status outside Athens. The case of Sparta. The same three status groups, citizen, non-citizen, and enslaved, existed in other Greek city-states. Citizenship was integral to the polis as an institution, as we have seen, and slavery was pervasive in the ancient world. Free non-citizen residents are attested elsewhere than Athens. For example, Pantheon is described as having lived as a metic in Thebes. It is likely, however, that Athens was unusual in the large number of its metic inhabitants. Sparta, the other leading city of classical Greece, was in several respects unlike Athens and other city-states. Here too, though, we see a similar picture of status differentiation with limited mobility up and down. As in Athens, citizens of Sparta all enjoyed the same rights. The notional egalitarianism of the citizen body is shown by the use of the term homoi, or the peers, to refer to Spartan citizens. Spartan society had few individually owned chattel slaves. Instead, there was a large class of the enslaved helots, literally captives. Also, although Sparta lacked an equivalent of the immigrant metic, 
There were numerous non-citizen Periokoi, the dwellers around, who lived in separate communities within Laconia. Nominally free, they were in practice wholly under Spartan control. In addition, various groups of people had a status lower than citizen, but higher than helot. These included Spartans who had been deprived of their citizen rights, children of a Spartan father and helot mother, and freed helots. There was, however, no mechanism for acquiring Spartan citizenship. Class Wealth represents the second main way in which the city-state of classical Greece were socially stratified. As discussed above, the concept of class and class conflict is particularly associated with the Marxist view of history. Regardless of whether one finds this approach helpful for studying the ancient world, there is ample evidence that the Greeks themselves regarded the unequal distribution of wealth as a fact of fundamental importance about their world, and as the source of tensions which could, and often, did result in outright conflict. Wealth, to some extent, cut across status divisions. There were rich medics and poor citizens. But in practice, class issues mostly played out within the citizen body. Greek writers who address issues of class typically divide the citizens into two groups, the rich and the poor. The rich are everywhere outnumbered by the poor, so they are also referred to as the few and the many, respectively. Furthermore, this division had political implications since each class was generally seen as favoring the form of constitution that most benefits its members. The rich supported oligarchy, the poor democracy. This binary view of class conforms to a tendency in Greek thought to see the world in terms of paired opposites, Greeks and non-Greeks, free and enslaved, male and female. Athenian political discourse reflects this binary model of rich and poor. The rich were generally identified as those who did not need to work to support themselves and their families, and the poor were everyone else. The distinction between poor and rich is sometimes expressed by modern scholars as one between mass and elite. As with status, however, the binary model of class is an oversimplification that corresponds only partially with the complex ways in which class operated in Athens. It is undeniable there were differences of wealth in classical Athens. Indeed, as we have seen, it was precisely on the basis of wealth that Solon's system of classification assigned every citizen to a particular group. These differences were reflected in some areas of civic life. For example, a citizen's role in the army or navy was determined by how much he was worth. The rich served in the cavalry or as a commander of a trireme. Those of middling wealth as hoplites, and the poor as light-armed infantry and rowers. A high level of wealth freed a man from needing to work and allowed him to spend time on other activities. A distinctive upper-class life of leisure revolved around exercising and socializing at the gymnasium during the day and drinking at the symposium hosted by a friend in the evening. Figure 8.2, an Athenian red-figured vase of the latter 5th century BCE, is a genre scene depicting wealthy young men reclining at a symposium and being entertained by a woman, likely enslaved, playing the flute. Athens' political leaders almost invariably came from the ranks of the wealthy. Even the so-called demagogues, populist politicians of the later 5th century BCE who appealed to poor Athenians, were certainly well off. Cleon, for example, owned a tannery, and in the 4th century BCE, 
The prominent anti-Macedonian politician Demosthenes came from a prosperous manufacturing family. The class structure of Athens. On the other hand, what we can discern about the distribution of wealth does not entirely support the picture of a division into two clearly defined classes. It is difficult to write with confidence about the demography of classical Athens. The evidence is poor, and a significant decline in the number of citizens from the 5th to 4th century BCE needs to be taken into account. But it does appear that in Athenian society, wealth was relatively evenly distributed. Land, the main form of wealth, was in limited supply, and no individual owned much of it. The largest attested landholding in Attica, the estate of one Phanipus, amounted to 436 hectares at most. The richest known Athenians were the banker Passion, most of whose wealth was in the form of loans, and an individual named Oeneus, who owned land not in Attica, but overseas. At the other end of the scale, a proposal in 403-402 BCE to limit citizenship to those Athenians who owned land could have disenfranchised only 5,000 Athenians out of a total of perhaps 25,000. So most Athenians owned some land, but few owned a lot. And even the wealthiest Athenians were far from rich by comparison with the elites of other ancient societies. The impression of a broadly evenly distributed form of wealth is supported by consideration of the third of Solon's groups, the Zugitai. In terms of wealth, they were a middle class. Evidence about the size of Athens' 5th century army suggests that the Zugitai also served as hoplites, made up a significant proportion of the total citizen body. According to Thucydides, Athens' army in 431 BCE comprised 29,000 hoplites, including metics. The number of the latter is unknown, but there can hardly have been fewer than 20,000 citizens of hoplite status at the time. All these men would have been sufficiently well-off to supply their own armor and weapons, as well as an enslaved attendant to accompany them on campaign. Writing about the social structure of Imperial Rome, a leading historian has criticized what he calls binary tunnel vision. Similarly, in classical Athens, binary rhetoric conceals the reality that there were a small number of relatively rich men, a large hoplite class, and an indeterminate number of poor. In the distribution of wealth, Athens, and the same is true of other city-states as well, was markedly egalitarian by comparison with most other pre-modern societies. Support for the poor and social cohesion. Athens' public finances operated to even out, to a degree, inequalities of wealth. Personal taxes were paid only by the rich, who were liable both to pay isphora, an occasional levy on wealth, and to perform liturgies. These were public services, such as producing a play at one of Athens' dramatic festivals, or equipping and serving as commander, the triarch, of a trireme in the navy, that they paid for themselves. In addition, many Athenians received public pay. These included magistrates and counselors, jurors, assembly-goers in the 4th century BCE, and members of the armed forces, and those employed on public building projects or in the dockyards. Admittedly, in some cases, pay was irregular and not restricted to the poor, but it was in the lives of the poor that it made the greatest difference. In other ways, too, poor Athenians were supported at public expense. A means-tested dole was paid to in invalids who were unable to work, 
And we hear of modest state payments during the last years of the Peloponnesian War, which were probably intended to support Athenians ruined by the war. In the early 4th century BCE, the city established the Theoric Fund. This originally served to subsidize poorer citizens' attendance at religious and dramatic festivals, but in time it came to play a more substantial role in the finances of the city. One politician referred to it as the glue of the democracy. The net effect was a redistributive system that reinforced the relatively equal distribution of wealth noted above. Class tension was further mitigated by factors that encouraged citizen cohesion and solidarity. As we have seen, all Athenians, whatever their class, shared the same privileged status. Athens' democratic system enshrined what has been described as the strong principle of equality. Every citizen had equal rights and was expected to participate in the public life of the city. This ideology is eloquently reflected in Pericles' famous funeral speech. If a man is distinguished in some respect, his prominence in public business is generally more a matter of ability than of class. As for poverty, no one who can benefit the city is prevented from doing so by the obscurity of this rank. Thus, economic egalitarianism, class, and political equality, status, aligned with and reinforced each other. Moreover, various civic institutions and other forms of association, demis, tribes, fair tries, religious groups, cut across class lines and encouraged integration and social homogeneity. Class in daily life. How were inequalities of wealth handled in a democratic society with its strong emphasis on the political equality of rich and poor? Part of the answer is that the rich were encouraged to channel their desire for distinction and to deploy their wealth in socially acceptable ways. The liturgical system mentioned above, whereby some public expenditure was delegated to the wealthy, was a powerful mechanism for encouraging them to spend lavishly, since the individual who was chosen to perform a liturgy would be praised or criticized according to how well he did so. A key concept was philotomia, the ambition for honor, which was shown by the liturgist who did more than the minimum. Such men showed their prathumia, their zeal, a term used much in honorific degrees, toward the demos. In return, they would receive general credit and on occasion more tangible honors. The triarch who was first to have his ship ready to sail was awarded a civic crown. Rich litigants might refer to the liturgical record in court in the hope of winning the juror's favor. Those who had the means were also expected to help family members and fellow deemed members in want, for example, by contributing to their daughter's dowry or ransoming a man taken captive in war. The impressive monument depicted in figure 8.3 was erected by the Socrates, a very wealthy Athenian, to celebrate his tribe's victory in a choral singing competition in 335 BCE. He paid both for the choir's training and costumes and for the monument out of his own pocket, thereby demonstrating the extent of his philotomia. At the same time, flaunting one's wealth was regarded as antisocial, indeed undemocratic, insofar as it showed a lack of respect for poorer citizens. Apollodorus is criticized in court by an opponent. You wear a woolen cloak and have freed one courtesan and given it away another in marriage, all this while having a wife, and you walk around accompanied by three slaves, and you live so extravagantly that even people you meet notice it. 
representations of Athenians on painted vases and funerary monuments tend to be uniform, with little differentiation by occupation or social class. An important concept in Athenian class relations is hubris. This term covered a range of behaviors characterized by arrogance and the desire to humiliate another, or at any rate, an utter lack of concern for others' rights or feelings. To act with hubris implied a belief in one's own superiority. As such, it was a quintessentially anti-democratic crime, and one that the rich were regarded as most likely to commit. Demosthenes' speech against Medeas paints a vivid picture of the hubristic behavior of his wealthy opponent, emphasizing the intent to humiliate that lay behind his actions. In a similar vein, the speaker of the extract from a 4th century law court speech shown in box 8.6 emphasizes the insulting nature of the assault he suffered at the hands of a man named Conan. Hubris was an offense in Athenian law, and the fact that prosecutions could be brought by any citizen, not just the victim, demonstrates that it was regarded as a serious matter affecting the polis as a whole. The relevant law stated that a prosecution could be brought even if the victim of hubris was an enslaved person. Enslaved people had no honor to protect. The point of the law was to deter hubristic behavior by forbidding it even in the case of the enslaved. Another important aspect of class relations was the absence of patronage. A system of hierarchical relationships, formal or informal, between rich patrons and poorer clients, as was was pervasive in ancient Rome. Roman patron-client relationships, although mutually beneficial, were based on the frank acknowledgement of class difference. Such dependence of poorer citizens on richer ones would have been unacceptable in democratic Athens. Similar thinking lies behind the extreme reluctance of Athenian citizens to work on a permanent basis for somebody else, as opposed to finding temporary employment or working on public projects. When an impoverished friend of the philosopher Socrates complains of his situation, Socrates advises him to find someone to employ him. The friend replies, I would find it hard, Socrates, to put up with slavery. The institution of slavery is important here. Not only were some Athenians lifted out of the need to work, in whole or in part, by using enslaved workers, but at the ideological level, the pervasive presence of enslaved people in Athens reinforced the sense that the citizen, however poor he might be, was a free man. Class and Politics Class played an important role in the political history of classical Greece. At Athens, democracy had evolved by stages out of the class struggles of the archaic period. In view of the tendency of the rich to support oligarchy, it is not surprising that the progressive democratization of Athens should have continued to meet with class-based opposition. Much surviving Greek political theory, written by members of the upper class, is anti-democratic in tone. A vivid example is the anonymous Athenian constitution, wrongly attributed to Xenophon, which equates the possession of wealth with moral superiority. But the relationship between class and democracy was complex. The wealthy Athenian Pericles was a champion of democracy, and Athens' political and military leaders continued to come from the rich, who vied with each other for popular support and honor. It was the untimely catastrophic Peloponnesian War against Sparta in 431-404 BCE that placed the greatest strain on harmony within the Athenian citizen body. Military failures led to a crisis of confidence in Athens' democratic institutions and ultimately to oligarchic revolution in 411 BCE. 
though democracy was restored in the following year. A short-lived oligarchic government, the so-called Thirty Tyrants, was imposed on Athens by the victorious Spartans in 404 BCE. In other cities, too, ever-present class tension was exacerbated by war and foreign interference, often resulting in outright civil war, stasis. The classic account of this is Thucydides' description of events at Corsian, Corfu, in the 420s BCE, where Athenian and Spartan support for Democrats and oligarchs, respectively, resulted in bitter conflict and the collapse of civil society. The pages of Aristotle's politics are full of examples of violent constitutional changes in the cities of Greece, and a 4th century BCE manual on how to defend a city against siege is as much concerned with the dangers of internal disunity and treachery as with the actions of the enemy. Nevertheless, Athens restored democracy remained stable, and class tension was less acute in the 4th century BCE. Of particular importance was a collective agreement that the Athenians made after the democratic restoration to be reconciled with each other and not to bear grudges. This agreement, although imperfectly observed, was vital in re-establishing a model of social harmony. Later, we find the establishment of the cult of Democratia, a goddess personifying democracy. There was a painting of her in the Stoa of Zeus, Eleutheria, in the Agora, and offerings were made to her And in 337-336 BCE, a law was passed that sought to prevent subversion of the democracy. The relief sculpture topping the inscribed text of the law has been interpreted as showing Democratia crowning the seated figure of Demos, the Athenian people, vividly reinforcing its message of collective popular rule. Summary Status and class are fundamentally important concepts for helping us understand many aspects of ancient Greek history. Status was based on legally defined rights, privileges, and obligations. The three main status groups in classical Athens were citizen, metic, and enslaved. Only citizens enjoyed the right to participate fully in the public life of the city. Metics were free, but lacked political rights. Enslaved individuals were treated in law as the property of their enslaver and had no rights of any kind. There was thus a clear hierarchy of statuses. Nevertheless, The boundaries between status groups were permeable in various ways. Citizens could lose some of their rights, medics could be granted citizenship, and enslaved people could be freed and thereby promoted to medic status. This tripartite division was broadly shared in other Greek polis. In politics and the law, status distinctions were inescapable. In social and economic life, however, we find citizens metics, and even enslaved individuals interacting in various ways, although differences of status were never wholly absent. Class is a less clear-cut concept. It operated predominantly within the citizen body, where a person's class was determined by wealth. Greek political thought generally operated on a binary model of rich and poor, with the latter greatly outnumbering the former. In classical Athens, where citizens were officially classified on the basis of their wealth, There was a small class of the leisured rich who tended to predominate in positions of political and military leadership. The distribution of wealth was, however, relatively even by comparison with other ancient states, and a large number of citizens belonged to a middle group between the rich and the needy poor. Democratic ideology promoted an egalitarian ethos, and richer Athenians were encouraged both to use their wealth for the good of the community and to conduct themselves in conformance with its prevailing values. 
While it would be an error to regard Athens as a classless society, the political egalitarianism of its democracy, together with the measures taken to mitigate existing differences of wealth, reinforced the harmony it largely enjoyed for a century and a half. Over time, the pervasive ideology of equality led to the internalization of democratic values, and Athenians of every class came to regard their city as the quintessential democracy. Nevertheless, class tension was never wholly absent, and both at Athens and elsewhere it could lead to conflict, even civil war, especially when a city was faced with war and other crises. Such conflict was often made worse by the intervention of outside states, who supported one side or the other for their own interests. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.